Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to Corner Kick. We assume that at this point you will have uh, listened through our preview pod and are ready to get down to the important business of talking about uh, the first match week of the season where we can already see how wrong we were and are immediately ready to double back on our takes. I am Nathan Strauss, joined by a man who did not get dominated in the air by uh, a a built-up Serb named Alexander Mitrovic. It is Nick Govindan. No, I didn't, but it certainly felt like I did because I woke up at 7.30 a.m. only to watch Liverpool flounder against Fulham and Alexander Mitrovic absolutely just Shaquille O'Neal jump all over Trent Alexander-Arnold. But I want to say something to the listeners before we begin today, and that is (laughs) that you know... Figures such as Danny Rojas from Ted Lasso, <laughs> Patrice Evra from the great game that we talk about on this podcast every single time. They they come to you frequently and they say that they love this game. They they love it with all of their heart. They're passionate about it. They're in the bathtub with their rubber duckies, a la Patrice Evra, saying that they love this game. Well, guess what? I hate this sport sometimes. And I'm in a I'm in a foul mood today, Nathan Strauss. And you're gonna be uh, it's going to be an entertaining one. Let's just say that. Well, now that that's out of the way. Uh, we're also joined by a man who did not leave to become uh, one of LA Galaxy's highest paid players uh, at the tender age of 23. It is Caleb Rhodes. No, I did not. And, you know, I wish Ricky Pooge the best. I, I'm probably going to watch more MLS now than I ever have before just because I am really curious to see if he sinks or swims surely he has to be just like, i mean it's la so he's that. probably gonna swim a little bit i'd hope like Santa okay Monica okay Beach okay never mind i i hate this podcast too <laughs> i i still like the sport i don't know i don't know ricky page is what five six five oh, seven he's he's miniature he's i don't miniature. know so i think he's he's more likely gonna he's like the little sebastian of yeah yeah going to rise <laughs> above the water line in la i don't know the, the tide is rising fast gentlemen and ricky puig i don't know if it's if no no, it's, the, no the rising sea could definitely end his career um indeed yes either that but, or, no 100 uh, gareth bale cutting through midfield i don't know i know actually it's funny we, we now have like a sort of ex el classico in the trafico which is I guess, kind of interesting if you're into that sort of thing. But Nick, I think it's only fair that we start with the early match day uh, on Saturday, where I'm guessing that you, like me, and probably everyone else assumed that Liverpool were going to, you know, if not win 5-0 against Fulham, uh, win maybe, you know, 3-0, try and keep a clean sheet. Yeah, I mean, uh, win. And instead, yeah, win, right? That was the expectation. Uh, and Alexander Mitrovic was the story of this game for, I think, all the right reasons. But I have to say, it didn't. It felt like Liverpool were missing something, and that was sort of like energy or focus. Is that fair to say? Well, also, first we should say the Premier League is back. Like, oh, it's back. Oh, it's so yes, back. We're, we're, no, I just mean like generally. Like, this was the first match week. This is our first uh, time that we're able to recap games. Um, so that is exciting. I don't think we gave that introduction yet. Maybe you did. I missed it. But Nick, 
tell us tell us what you were feeling Saturday morning. Yeah, and I think this episode is frequently the one where we get to make our big, you know, overreaction proclamations, or as Nathan said, recorrections on our last week's season's predict season predictions. And yeah, Liverpool Liverpool look pretty screwed coming out of this week against Fulham. I mean, they went down to Craven Cottage, which is a place two years ago during the pandemic. They had another really poor performance that led to a draw, and they had a they had a terrible performance here. They had a woeful, woeful performance, and the first sixty minutes were some absolutely lack of control. Uh, anti-clop they got disrupted by the high intensity of Fulham Fulham who I didn't think were I thought were good right they were they were good I didn't think they were incredible I thought Liverpool were just that that disrupted by the energy of Fulham Fulham definitely played like a side coming up from the championship who wanted to hustle Andreas Pereira was everywhere on the pitch in the final third causing problems Um, I thought Joao Paulinha was excellent in the six for Fulham, uh, breaking things up for them and being able to, you know, launch the ball forward. I thought Anthony Roberts, Robert, excuse me. I thought Anthony Robinson was excellent on the day in the first half in particular. And yeah, I thought, I, I think Liverpool just got a little caught off guard by the intensity of Fulham, which is not something that we're used to seeing from them. And their first choice midfield of Fabinho, Thiago and Jordan Henderson were especially victims of that. They played, I think, the worst half of football we have seen from any Liverpool midfield in quite some time. And I think there's a conversation that we need to have about the capabilities of Jordan Henderson, even though he is one of the great, he's going to go down as one of the great Liverpool captains for all that he's accomplished. I think there is a debate to be had around his quality as an elite footballer as of right now for this title chasing Liverpool team. Thiago goes off injured at the start of the second half. That's now nine members of the Liverpool first team that are sidelined with injury right now to begin the season, including Diogo Jota, including Curtis Jones. So heavy rotational options are missing for Liverpool as of right now. And it really did feel like like doom and gloom. Obviously, Jordan Henderson hits the crossbar in the 90th minute with a long-range shot. So things could have we could have left Craven Cottage with a 3-2 win, which would have colored things very differently. But, you know, the positives from this game are Darwin Nunes, coming off the bench and dominating Tim Ream and Tosin Adarabio uh, from the moment he stepped on the pitch and he scored an absolutely lovely goal, probably should have had one or two more, but he looks like he's really acclimated well, like all Liverpool signings who seem to frequently hit the ground running. It looks like Darwin Nunes is doing so and Mo Salah scoring his sixth straight opening day goal as a Liverpool player. And so he's broken his own record that he set last season but other than that, you know, Liverpool are missing Thiago once again. You know, he's set to miss six weeks, according to The Athletic. Liverpool's win percentage drops by a considerable margin when Thiago is not on the field. And now all eyes are going to turn to the transfer market once again. Jurgen Klopp, um, after he said that he was, you know, disappointed in the performance and that he didn't, he didn't hug the boys because he didn't feel like they deserved it, which is a huge <laughs> statement. He withheld the hugs. That's how you know. You know, you know something's going on. Which is a huge statement from serial hugger Jurgen Klopp. Um, yeah, I mean, things have not started well for Liverpool. They feel very disrupted right now, and all eyes are going to be on the, the transfer market to see whether or not Liverpool pull the trigger to sign a midfielder, which I think, as Caleb noted in our preseason pod, 
we were a bit light in midfield going into this season. And now with all of the injuries and certainly the massive injury to Tiago, we are even lighter. And uh, finally, I hate the sport. Yeah, I you know, that's where I was going to go. I think I, I chose Liverpool to win the league. I feel like I made an error um, already. And it really does come down to the midfield that even, you know, at full strength, I think is perhaps missing a touch of vitality. I think Jordan Henderson, 32 years old now, only completed 71% of his passes, um, which just simply isn't good enough against, you know, a newly promoted side. Like, there will be far more difficult teams to face in the league this year than Fulham. Um, I think Liverpool also started, you know, like more than half their team that they started today was over the age of 30. And so I think there needs to be a little uh, vitality injected in. Darwin Nunez could sort of play a big role. And I think he scored with a, you know, backheel flick after, you know, narrowly having a similar shot saved minutes prior. And he definitely looks like he can, you know, take on a big burden and and perhaps, you know, will this team to some results, um, especially if they don't have as much control as they expect. Um, on the Fulham side, you know, I think the question that, you know, not us, but everybody had really been asking is like, can Mitrovic do it? Um, and so far, the evidence is is that he can. I mean, I think the penalty he won ahead of his, what was that? Was that his second goal? Um, the second goal, yeah. Sort of eluding yeah. Virgil van Dijk was perhaps a touch soft, um, but I think it showed a kind of deftness that I'm not sure we thought he would possess against, you know, one of the best center backs in in world football yeah and just to, <laughs> he also I, he I, also Cruyff turned van dyke in midfield which was oh my yeah. one of the funniest thi- i literally was like cracking up as i watched that because <laughs> yeah i mean he's got the agility of like an elephant or like <laughs> like like not and that's actually maybe more disrespectful than the agility I, of like a dodge challenger <laughs> no no no. but it's he, he he's built to move sort of vertically not laterally and he moved laterally so quickly i think virgil van dyke actually kind of like made like that closed O shocked expression. And I was like, yeah, fair enough. Like I wasn't expecting it either. Like, yeah, but carry on. And I, I think just think to, that, well, um... as an example of how, how good Mitrovic was on the day, Virgil van Dijk has not given away a penalty in the Premier League as a center back for four years. So, I mean, that says a lot about the quality of, of Mitrovic coming into this game and, you know, his adaptability to the Premier League right from the off. And to be yeah. fair, I think a lot of the criticisms are still valid. Like, I mean, his pass completion was 36%. But, you know, the other side of the coin is that he can clearly score goals. And this makes me think that maybe he will get like 15 goals this season. He's not going to be able to perform like that every day. And frankly, the the three playing behind him, Bobby Reed, 30-year-old Niskins Cabano, and, and, you know, Pereira, who looked uninspiring, um, you know, they're going to struggle a lot more, I think, than they did uh, in this game. But oh yeah, uh, no, I know, mean, if you're, if you're a, Fulham, you're ecstatic with this result. No, right. I mean, and I think opening day, your newly promoted side against Liverpool, you know, there's a lot of excitement and buzz. If you're someone like Mitrovic, especially, you're, you want to prove yourself. And so I think, right, he's not going to turn in two goal performances against, you know, one of the top defenses in the league and in the world week in and week out but I think we all agree and I agree with your analysis Nathan that like 
it does seem like he could probably hit like mid-teens, which I think a week ago when we recorded our preview pod, we were really questioning whether he had actually kind of made that turn. Another player I want to shout out on Fulham um, that Nathan had also picked out a bunch um, is Palina, who, you know, had like four tackles, I think really was a major disruptor in the midfield in breaking up Liverpool's rhythm. Um, and I think he could prove to be a really key signing as Fulham sort of adapt to the Premier League. But that's probably enough talk about Fulham and Liverpool, unless, Nathan, you have you know any final thoughts here. But I might suggest that we head to the previous day and in the Premier League opener um, between Crystal Palace and Arsenal next. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I was... Arsenal have a tendency of losing. They also have a tendency of getting picked for the super early, you know, Premier League opening match day. Uh, remember last year, obviously, they had that calamitous start against Brentford. Uh, but Crystal Palace away, it's a London Derby to start the season. Palace away is obviously one of the most difficult, I think, r- trips to make outside of the big six. Arsenal you know, lost this game 3-0 towards the end of last season. Yeah, uh, Vieira, Vieira owned Arsenal last year. Uh, you know, Palace took four points of the six available uh, from Arsenal. But uh, you know, Arsenal had a really settled team coming out of preseason where we played the same starting 11 uh, two matches in a row, which you pretty much never see in preseason. Uh, but uh, it got off to a great start. I mean, Martinelli scored off a set piece uh, started by Alexander Zinchenko. Uh, we played really well for the first half an hour or first 25 minutes. And then I don't know what happened, but Palace suddenly started getting a lot more of the ball. And that was sort of the trend that continued until, uh, you know, midway through the second half when Arsenal made some subs or really late in the second half. Uh, and then Bukayo Saka kind of worked some magic and uh, scored via a deflection from Mark Guehi to make it 2-0, but I thought it was a good result, obviously, and I think it showed that, uh, you know, Arsenal last year had a habit of losing games when they played poorly, which is something of a, an obvious statement, but the best teams need to be able to win games where they don't dominate the whole time, and I thought this was a good example of that. So all in all, three points in the bag, um, a difficult away trip, you know, done, and, uh, you know, happy to open up the season and see how the team can play. It's just sustaining it going forward. Right. I mean, this Arsenal won in a performance where I think in previous years they may have drawn a fixture like this or even lost. Um, I mean, if you look at like the top line stats, you know, Crystal Palace outpossessed them, outpassed them, had more XG. Um, I thought Anderson in particular was really just spraying long balls all over the place. Um, But I think it shows to me at least that I think there has been a bit of a mentality change at Arsenal where they're able to get three points um, in potentially sort of adverse scenarios. I mean, they had to play Ben White sort of out of position at right back. Um, I thought all their goals were, were solid quality. Um, I'm glad I had Martinelli in my FPL team. I think Zinchenko looked pretty good um, in that left back role. 
Saliba as well, sort of finally making his. I don't think this is his debut for Arsenal, but his no, re-debut. It was, it was no, it was it his really. Full, it was his full oh debut. wow! Yeah. So it's and and they've you know they've had him since he was what eighteen or nineteen, and obviously he's had some issues with Arteta and the club in the past. And I thought he put in you know a really excellent performance in defense. So I think this is a good starting point for the club. I think the only thing that could have made it you know a better result um, is if they were a you know a little more dominant in possession. And B, if if Gabriel Jesus, who by no means had a bad game, was able um, to actually find the net, but a positive start uh, for for the Gunners so far this year. Yeah, I mean the only concern I would have in this game is that, like Nathan said, you know they got a little rattled by Aaron Ramsdale screwing up that clearance, and then after that the tempo was a little bit off, and so I think there's still some signs that this Arsenal team, as young as they are, even though they have some experience there in midfield and with players like Zinchenko now who have any Jesus who've gone ahead and won the Premier League multiple times that there's still some some signs of an experience and that they can get rattled a little quickly but I definitely thought that the mentality change like Caleb said was on display right from the jump and they were able to see this out in ways that we haven't been able to see Mikel Arteta's team see things out beforehand so very positive signs from Arsenal I do want to mention that Joachim Anderson for Crystal Palace was the only outfield player who started for them that was white. Everyone else on Crystal Palace's team was a person of color. And so that was pretty cool to see. Yeah, and I think it's especially cool if you remember, you know, I mean, not that either, I don't know if you could remember this, but Patrick Vieira was part of the Arsenal team under Arsene Wenger that set, you know, not the record, but sort of broke the proverbial color barrier, you know, and, and he and Thierry Henry, uh, Thierry Henry and All or Nothing sort of talks about how clubs didn't really sign black players before uh, that team, talking about how sort of Arsenal and the London clubs are, you know, by nature multicultural. So I did think that was really cool. And I'm sure it uh, it meant a lot to Vieira, who's obviously, you know, one of the few high profile uh, black head coaches right now as well. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was incredible to just see optically on paper. And also just like you said, you know, for a manager like Patrick Vieira to have the core of his team be mostly black young men, I think is just an incredible thing for the Premier League. And one that I think I didn't see many people talk about it. So I thought it was just important to note on this pod, like while we have the time to do so. So I thought that was a very cool thing, even though, you know, they did lose the game. They have players like Abrici Eze and Zaha and Edouard and Dekure, who I thought was fine for his first cameo and his first debut in Premier League. So I don't know there's plenty to appreciate about this Crystal Palace side, even in defeat. Yeah, and if we can go through some of the other uh, Premier League results this weekend that probably don't merit a full conversation, but a, a big win for the Cherries, who beat Steven Gerrard's Aston Villa 2-0. Uh, Jefferson Lerma, a player who I truly forgot existed, scored the opener, and that really set the tone there. Uh, Leeds showed that they are going to pretty much be a high-risk, high-reward team. Uh, they beat Wolves 2-1. Newcastle with some, with some really good debut performances from Brendan Aronson and Tyler Adams, I might add. Yes, uh, good enough that I actually just transferred in Brendan Aronson to my fantasy team. Uh, I don't think we need to talk too much about the game itself, but because it was literally worse than watching paint dry. But Chelsea beating Everton 1 0, uh, somehow it feels like both teams came away from this game losers. Uh, obviously, Ben Godfrey fracturing his tibia 
is a big blow for for Everton. But Chelsea, someone made a compilation of all the runs that Raheem Sterling made with the caption, Kevin De Bruyne would have spotted him. It was a, a pretty dismal game, just like on the surface. Yeah, I mean, the loser here was me. Uh, sitting through this game and watching it in its entirety. Obviously, Ben Godfrey is someone who has had a lot of injury issues in his young career, and I hope that he gets better because I think he's he's a talented player in the Premier League and he deserves to be playing. But other than that, I really thought this was quite an unwatchable game for the first weekend slate. And emphasized by the fact that I think we're going to see this a lot from Chelsea where they're going to go up 1-0 via a Jorginho penalty or, you know, Sterling knocking it in, or, you know, by some by some miracle, they're going to find a way to, to, to put the ball in the back of the net in quite an ugly fashion. And they're going to just sit out the rest of the game and try and control the tempo and slow things down. It felt like they were trying to waste time all the way through the second half and delaying things and, you know, being slow with throw-ins and passing the ball around, taking one or two extra touches. Cucurella comes on. Um, in the second half, and he kind of follows the same blueprint, keeps things wide, um, plays like short free kicks. And it just feels like you know, while Chelsea are in this period of turmoil, I certainly don't blame Thomas Tuchel for doing this. While Chelsea are in this period of um, uncertainty, I don't know, I think I said turmoil earlier, I'm, I'm not sure it's quite turmoil yet. I think it's certainly uncertainty. They're going to try and do this. They're going to try and be incredibly pragmatic and boring and get as many points as they can on the board. And for Everton, Obviously, they have secured the signing of Connor Cody, Amadou Onana uh, from Lille, who is a promising young midfielder. And it's looking like they're bringing back in Idris Gay as well. So they're going to get some some refreshments in midfield and defense uh, for the next portion of their campaign. But I still don't know. That offense looks really stagnant. Dwight McNeil, I thought, was pretty woeful on the day as the central figure. Deli Ali was even more woeful coming off the bench. And so I think there's definitely a need for more attackers if Everton want to stay up this year. But uh, yeah, pretty pretty dreadful watch all around. Yeah, I mean, as we said last week, Everton need Calvert-Lewin to play at 100% and to be fit. He was not in the team this week. There was no recognizable striker in the squad at all with sort of McNeil, uh, Gray, and, and Gordon sort of taking turns being bad, you know, false nines or playing or center forwards. Um, oddly, Chelsea, in a weird way, feel like a kind of just like, <laughs> maybe this is mean, like a better Everton where they still also lack. They played a very similar formation. They lack a true striker right now, especially since they are about to or maybe have already completed the sale of Timo Werner back to RB Leipzig for a loss. Um, I don't think Jorginho and Conte have enough vision as the center midfield pairing to, you know, put the types of through balls that Sterling's going to need, that Havertz is going to need, that even Mount is going to need if this team's going to score goals. And I think a few years ago when Chelsea were spending big money to revamp their offense and we expected, you know, this massive offensive explosion, a lot of those pieces um, have either not really panned out, have been sold, and we're still kind of in the same place we've been with with this Chelsea team, which is they look for clean sheets, they try to keep it tidy, 
Um, but at the end of the day, they're rarely going to score more than one goal, let alone two or three. We can have a really good time, I think, listing the names of uh, Chelsea strikers who were brought in with big hopes and failed. Obviously, going all the way back to Fernando Torres or Falcao, even. Uh, but Shevchenko yeah. is a big one. Uh, I mean, we could literally keep going if we wanted to. Even even Murata, uh, Loic Remy, Higuain, uh, but Higuain, etc., etc., etc. I mean, you can name the good ones on one Demba. hand, really, right? Diego Costa, Eto, Drogba, uh, Hernan Crespo, Tammy Abraham, briefly, uh, and maybe Nicholas Amelka. But I mean, it's crazy to think that the loss that Chelsea took on Lukaku and Werner is like 125 million. Uh, and yeah, that move was completed today, by the way. Uh, I think Werner going back to Leipzig is good for him and for pretty much everyone involved, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, yeah, Chelsea, you know, are clearly still going to be spending, I think, in the next couple of weeks, unless they do what I would consider to be like a smart play and sort of try out starting Armando Broja up top. Because he looked, you know, if he could do it for Southampton, uh, he can certainly do it. For Chelsea with a better supporting but he cast, I he think. didn't really do it for Southampton. I would argue. I thought his movement was really good at Southampton, and he did a lot of the off the ball, like Hassan Huddle pressing stuff quite well. But his actual goal scoring record was pretty poor for a loan spell. I don't think he scored. He got ten, right? I think he got ten. No, I don't think so. I don't think he got ten. I mean, I could be wrong here, but I really, I'm not sure. Broja, Broja is the solution to to their issues currently, and I'm not sure Thomas Tuchel is ready to. You know, strap the rocket ship onto him, and he had nine goals. Okay, but only, uh, but only six in the Premier League. Yeah, I mean that's still not that's not who you want leading the line for Chelsea, and especially because Bruja, in my opinion, is is as of right now he could develop, obviously, but he is a very kind of one to two dimensional player. His skill set isn't that vast, very much you know a big man who runs vertically, which seems to be the theme of this podcast currently uh, <laughs> just title this episode big he's man, he's man a, running he's laterally Al- <laughs> he's albanian too which which makes me think about you know the fact that we could have him going up against mitrovic in this sort of fun little balkan clash but yeah i guess that's a fair point i'm just thinking along the lines of you know one of my big criticisms of chelsea this window and not just this window but really the last like five years or so is their academy is so good partly because they pay to get good talents in at the age of 16 and 17. Uh, but they, you know, are bringing in all these recruits from outside the club. I would have loved to see, you know, players like Tammy Abraham get a better crack at it. You know, it seems like they're going to keep Connor Gallagher. Uh, but it's fascinating to me how even, you know, if we take away the, the loan army that they are sort of made fun of for having, how few players actually sort of break through. Like how how good would this Chelsea team be if they had like Mark Guehi starting at center back? Like they wouldn't. I, I think they could have. They they could. Oh, sort of, I mean, I think Tammy Abraham is the one. Yeah, that really. Yeah, Tammy Abraham, away. Mark Guehi as well. And that, and that right falls now. on Tuchel too. Like Tuchel's the one who dispensed with Tammy Abraham. So right, but I think as a matter of policy, they haven't done a great job in the last like eight years of integrating their youth players. Uh, and obviously, I think you could include someone like Kevin De Bruyne in that Daniel as well. Sturridge. Daniel Sturridge. Yeah. I mean, the list, the list goes on, the right? Like, on. Yeah. 
Oh, they loaned in Alexander Pato, I remember. <laughs> I mean, we could include Mo Salah, but he wasn't really a youth player, but uh, it doesn't seem like their transfer policy is great. Anyways. Chelsea, Chelsea uh, are often wasteful is kind of the point. I think the yeah. other game from Saturday worth mentioning quickly, Spurs, you know, beating down on a Southampton team that's going to get relegated um, pretty clearly. <laughs> Uh, that's the official position. Yeah, but I bet twelve minutes in, you were absolutely crapping yourself. You were like, "Oh my god, I was so wrong." And then, well, well, I I had mixed feelings because I have Ward Prowse in <laughs> FPL, and so I basically only want Ward Prowse to succeed. Um, I, I mean, I don't want Southampton not to succeed, but it, but you know what I mean. Um, looks- meanwhile, I think oh, Spurs so far have looked you know ready to rock um in their one game i mean without harry kane doing all that much no goals or assists they still got four on the board kulisevsky took his good form from last season into this season he now has the most assists um in the premier league in 2022 i really don't know how juventus misused this player so dramatically but you know their loss is Spurs gain again they played Southampton I don't want to read too too much into it but I think a 4-1 win is is about as good as you, you can hope from any fixture generally yeah and they did it all without using really any of their new signings any of like the six new signings that they've made who were all sat on the bench you know Ivan Perisic comes on um halfway through the second half to replace Ryan Sessegnon, who I thought played really well. And then after that, you know, in the 80th, 85th minute, you kind of get the parade of Izbasuma and all the rest of the, the new signings coming on as well. And they still have to wait a little bit for Richarlison. So, yeah, I thought this was a really impressive performance from Spurs. I thought Kuliszewski is, I think we talked about this, you know, at the end of last season, he's exactly who Harry Kane and Hunman Saad needed to sort of refresh their dynamic and be that third man who can support the rest of their team and support the rest of their attack in a bit of a different way. And I think he's sort of perfectly made for the Premier League in a way that, you know, he's he might not be for Sirion for what Juventus wants to do. You know, he's 6'2". He's a bit of a bigger guy. He's quick. He can cut inside. He's got a good range of passing. He can score goals, clearly. Um, he's a very variable kind of player who can do a lot of things for Conte. And I think... You know he's he's gonna be he's gonna have a I I imagine he'll have you know a real breakout season if he hasn't broken out already. But yeah, Southampton are in deep trouble. That nineteenth place prediction from Caleb is looking quite good. And maybe I should have I was a year early with my twentieth place prediction from uh, from last year. Oh no, I'm standing on your shoulders, Nick. To be yeah. clear, this is not an original. Yeah, move Nick Nick walked so Caleb could run. <laughs> uh, yeah, they look they look. I mean, Jan Valery who we know as being you know, an academy <laughs> right back, uh, was playing center back for them. It looked like Hassan Hudel was changing his formation every 30 to 30-ish minutes or so to accommodate you know, substitutions and things like that. Uh, Romeo Lavia looked totally overwhelmed. I think he was Oh, I thought he looked more... great. Really? Looked I, thought great. He was, I thought he was Southampton's best player. No, but you could see him looking around and being like, oh boy, like I'm the only one really picking up the slack here. Uh, Ward Prowse, I thought, kind of faded away. As as Spurs kind of cranked up the noise, and yeah, God, they made Emerson look good. Like they made Emerson look great, and they made you know the the cross the cross ball from like Emerson to to Sessegnon, Kulusevski to Sessegnon 
looked really easy. And there's they have a lot of work to do on the training ground, it seems. Yeah, I thought I thought Spurs looked really good to wrap us up on this. I thought Spurs looked really good. Um, I do think that Spurs have a big issue, and that's depth, obviously, with the Champions League. Uh, you know, they're letting allegedly letting Brian Heal go back on loan. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how many games are. I'm not sure how much they'll rotate, I guess, in the Champions League is what I'm saying. And you look at their bench and, you know, Spence, Sanchez, Lucas Mora, Dardy, Basuma, Longley, Peretic. That's pretty good. But I do feel like they're probably like one signing away from maybe having a complete squad. They obviously just signed that uh, that right back from Udinese, but they loaned him back. Um, someone who I hadn't even heard of, but I'm sure he'll end up being great as a wing back eventually. But uh, of the Sunday games, I think we don't need to talk about Lester Brentford. Uh, Brentford looked pretty good in that. Uh, well, I think but one thing to touch on before we depart the London-based clubs chasing top four is that Spurs and Chelsea meet this Sunday, and I think what is going to be the first marquee game of the Premier League season. So. That is one definitely to look forward to and to kind of gauge where both of these teams really are. That should be a that should be a fun one. Always a, a very violent fixture, I feel like, when those two teams play. But uh, Sunday, Leicester Brentford two uh, two draw. Uh, let's do let's do City and West Ham briefly because uh, Erling Holland. Yeah, I know, I know. Erling Holland got a brace. Uh, City really just dominated the whole game. Uh, Rodri had like 110 passes or 101 passes and uh, without starting Bernardo Silva or Alvarez or Riyad Mahrez, uh, you know, Man City kind of went through the motions and picked up a 2-0 win. Yeah, I remember when we said last week in our preseason predictions that it might take a little while for Man City to unlock Erling Holland and find a system where everything works and to not play like they're in the false nine, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, they, they took them about like you know, maybe 30-ish minutes to figure that all out. And the answer, it seems, is that Pep Guardiola has inverted the fullbacks so that they're essentially both playing central defensive midfields and they're narrowing things so far so that they have to play like one or two passes to get Erling Holland into space. And that's essentially what they did for both his run for the penalty that Areola gives up after just coming on to replace Fabianski and in the second half where West Ham are starting to you know, get more into the game, but then it takes like one pass for Erling Holland to find space from just how narrow the field is that uh, Kinsella and Walker are kind of collapsing everything and he can just run in and, and score with one touch. So yeah, it seems like they've figured out a solution for, you know, how to how to give Erling Holland that final ball and that he doesn't need to actually do that much and drop in like we've seen a lot of city attackers do previously. So that's very scary. It's It's terrifying. You know, Erling Holland has already dropped you know, the trademark meditation ceremony in his first, or the cer- meditation ceremony, um, <laughs> meditation celebration in his first game as a Premier League player. Uh, he's he's currently leading the golden boot right now with Pascal Gross, who we're going to talk about in uh, Manchester United against Brighton. And so, yeah, it's all very terrifying. And then to make it even more terrifying, you know, City are cruising to a 2-0 win. West Ham are putting up the defense shields, trying not to lose by any more. And uh, you look to the touchline, and there's there's uh, <laughs> Bernardo Silva and Riyad Mahrez and Julian Alvarez coming onto the pitch, uh, and so yeah, um, it's it's we talked about you know the lack of depth for teams like Liverpool and Spurs right now, but it seems like as always, Man City are rolling 
in depth and they're going to be rolling in Erling Holland goals and I'm going to be uh rolling in misery on the ground when City once again win the Premier League by about seven to ten halfway points. through February oh yeah seven to ten points also works uh City also set or, or have now gone 19 away games unbeaten which is a lot that's a season's worth of away games unbeaten but yes city are city are scary holland is good um and things <laughs> shout are right for shout out holland for swearing in his press conference post game and then swearing when called out for swearing uh that, that man that, was, that man does that what he wants um, yeah so things are bright on that side of manchester and things are dark <laughs> things are really dark it's dark, dude. Oh my god, it's it was a dark amazing. time. It was amazing. No, no, no. The thing is, no, it's no. dark. It's amazing. It's dark, but it was entirely predictable. Oh yeah. Like yeah. they rolled out with basically no strikers because they have no striker other than Ronaldo, and Ten Hag is trying to like establish his dominance over Ronaldo, but he's going to lose. Um, McFred remains the same McFred we've ever known. Right, and unlike the McRib, we're not excited when it comes around at the beginning of a season. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I feel like we've had the same conversation about this club for years now, and now they are turning to Rabio from Juventus as the solution to their problems. I mean. Who runs this club? Who runs recruitment? It, it's, <laughs> Remember it, we were it, all praising the, the Rangnick appointment, by the way, as like a director of football and also a coach? That was like eight yeah, months but, ago. But then Rangnick, Rangnick had that epic like end of season rant where he essentially said nothing is going to change unless like the DNA of the club changes. And No, then, I'm you know, sure. I'm sure. Yeah. I, I, I think, think that's they, fair. I just think yeah. it's interesting because we thought that they had they sort of figured it out. Yeah, I think the error, I think in retrospect, you know, what they should have done is they should have appointed Rangnick as director of football and had him start setting the groundwork without firing Ole. Right? Because I think what what we can see now is that Rangnick as a coach is just not a transcendent coach and hasn't coached at a very top level in a long time. Like the man was like posted up in Russia. Um, and so to ask him to take... His assistant manager was actually in Russia and on the phone during games. <laughs> yeah. That's how posted up this yeah. man was so, in Russia. So, so to ask him to like take this dumpster fire and to turn it into something less dumpster fiery was, was a tall order. But I think he is good at building organizations. You just can't build an organization in six months. And they took someone... Instead, their response to that was to fire Ten Hag and, and Thanos him into oblivion after Rangnick. His, Rangnick. Uh, yeah, Rangnick, after uh, he criticized the club and appoint Eric Ten Hag, who is a very good coach, but comes from one of the most precise and well-organized structures in world football. You know, he's had someone like Mark Overmars. He's had someone like Edwin van der Sar around him at all times to help guide him through the process. Not to mention of he, worked, he worked sort of vaguely under Pep because his first like real head coaching job was with Bayern Munich's reserve side. Right, right, right. So he's always had a really defined organization around him. And to jump from that into the chaos that is Manchester United was always going to be an incredibly 
and a Manchester United with Cristiano Ronaldo was always going to be an incredibly difficult task. And we saw that on the pitch against Brighton where United really lacked any sort of energy. They lacked a real defined set of roles. I thought, like Caleb said, McFred was McAwful as usual. And the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. And once again, Manchester United are starting the season with Harry Maguire and a new center back beside him and hoping that things get better when they don't have a defensive midfielder in front of them to, to shield them. And Lisandro Martinez, I, I thought, was terrible. I thought like he, he should have given away a penalty in the second half. Brighton should have had a penalty. Um, it was a more obvious penalty than the Mitrovic one in the Liverpool game. And Maguire, once again, was responsible for one of the goals because he didn't close down, uh, I forget which Brighton player it was, but leading to the pass that, that Gross scores from. So I just don't think anything, like, like Caleb said, we've had this conversation over and over again. And then they're coming up against another really well-drilled, well-organized team in Brentford next week. And you can probably expect a similar result. I thought, you know, going forward, they were so slow. Things actually got better when Ronaldo came on because they had a bit of a focal point. Christian Eriksen did not work as a false nine. Um, he sort of like drifted into random spaces and it was dropping really deep and they had no one forward and the ball progression was like just, it was bad to watch. It was horrible. And yeah, I don't think anything is getting better at this club anytime soon. Yeah, I think Brentford probably beat them on, on Saturday. And it's made even funnier by the fact that, well, also I, I think it really could have been like 3-1 or maybe even 4-1 because Brighton, who made me look good, uh, you know, obviously right now they're on pace to, you know, if not win the league, certainly qualify for the Champions League, uh, sort of joking. But um, they they played really, really well, but their job was made easier by United's inability to pass out of like a fairly simple press. Like they made Danny Welbeck look like a world-class striker. And Welbeck gliding past Maguire and Diego Dalot and Lissandra Mar- Martinez is a pretty big indictment. I actually didn't think Maguire was terrible. I thought Martinez was far worse. Uh, the only real positive for United was Erickson, I thought looked pretty good. Uh, and Jaden Sancho showed sort of signs of life. But it's incredibly hard if you're basically rolling out a 4-6 with no 1. Uh, and while City played basically a team of midfielders, uh, you know, United playing a team of midfielders didn't quite work out the same way. And United's response is to sign, I guess, Adrian Rabio, who I'm sure will fit their clubhouse like a glove. I just don't understand the Adrian Rabio thing. And I think it's, I, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. You know, they, Paul Pogba went back to Juventus on a free. Adrian Rabio is someone who Juventus are looking at terminating his contract. And instead they're going to get, you know, upwards of 17 million uh, for, from United for them. He doesn't solve any of their issues really in midfield. Rabio has been not the same player that he was at PSG for a while you know, he's someone who has like written letters to the French national team saying that he belongs in the squad when he feels, you know, mistreated and like he's not with playing assistance enough. from his mom and Veronique. Veronique yeah. Rabio, uh, who sounds like a real Karen, let me just say. Uh not to, you know, drop that sort of lingo on this podcast, but I guess I just did. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's just not and then like the Marco Arnautovic thing. And that's because, you know, Eric Ten Hag and um, Steve McLaren were familiar with him from when they were at Twente, like 12 years ago. And so, like Caleb said, like, I don't know who's in charge of the recruitment here, but it feels very reactionary and haphazard. And 
in like how many strikers over the age of 30 are Manchester United going to sign before they realize that it actually becomes, you know, a detriment to how they're able to squad build for the next season. So I guess there's some things that this club will never learn. Yeah. And that kind of wraps up the first, first weekend of, of Premier League action, but the Premier League wasn't the only league that, that kicked off this weekend. The Bundesliga started and ended as well. Um, Bayern Munich kicked off the kicked off, sport. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Kicked off the season against reigning Europa League champions Eintracht Frankfurt, albeit you know they're missing several central players uh, to that side. But it was you know Bayern's first competitive fixture without you know former talisman Lewandowski, and they only won. 6-1 away with a debut goal for Mane, a goal and assist for Nabry. Two goals for young star Jamal Musiala. Kimmich scored. Um, literally, he took advantage of the sort of obscuring of the goalkeeper's vision by smoke from the Eintracht fans at their kind of like fan end and just kind of like passed the ball into the net. Muller had two assists. Looks like he'll be fine. Um, without Lewandowski in front of him. I think we said that maybe this was the year that the Bundesliga would be truly competitive um, internally. Uh, it is not. Guys. So, <laughs> guys. Guys. I think Bayern Munich are going to win the Bundesliga. <laughs> yeah. Um, they look, and just on the Lewandowski front, they look really refreshed without him. And I think in a weird way, not having Lewandowski there and having to accommodate for a very central figure means that Julian Nagelsmann is able to play around with the tactics like he was able to do at RB Leipzig when they were really great under him. And Sadio Mane offers a very different threat to Lewandowski going forward. You know, he's able to link up play a bit more he's able to come in off the right he's able to drop in he's able to swap with Muller Muller's able to go centrally Mane's able to drift out onto the right uh, he gets he gets that first goal from a header so he still offers some of that center forward play as we saw last season at Liverpool when he was playing through the middle um, and I thought Musiala I think this is going to be a real breakout season for him he's going to start most games for them uh, Ilkay Gundogan said this week that he is you know the player for Germany that I think is that he thinks is going to make real waves heading into the World Cup. And I think that's definitely true um, coming off the left for them. And I think we don't really need to worry about goals or them having to make up Lewandowski's goals. Clearly, there's still goals in this team. Uh, Sabitzer looked like he was fitting in way more. And so, yeah, I mean, still, you know, delict to come, things like that. And there's uh, this Bayern team look incredibly promising right now. And I'm interested to see what they're going to be able to do in the Champions League as I, well. I feel like they're almost entering their city phase. <laughs> like, like Nagelsmann kind of is like the German Guardiola in a lot of ways. Um, and now that they don't that, yeah. have, you know, a, a real out-and-out striker, he's finally able, as you mentioned, Nick, to like put all of his tactical alchemy to good use. Um Nathan, that's also sorry, a, it's, a, it's a kind of what's well, a kind of tactical alchemy that's afforded to you when you have like a squad that's so clearly better than every other team in the league, and that's sort of been a criticism of Guardiola at times, where it's like he can he can do all these things because you know his his team just 
or his club rather spends so well, but I think it's even more exacerbated for Bayern who spend just about as much money as like the entire Bundesliga combined. So I, I think Nagelsmann's a great manager uh, and it was very kind of Bayern to wrap up the Bundesliga before uh, Arsenal kicked off on Friday. I definitely appreciated that. Uh, some nice courtesy as well. Although speaking of the Bundesliga, it did get uh, a little bit richer today with Timo Werner returning back to the side that birthed him or birthed his star, I guess. Uh, I think he'll do really well at Leipzig. Uh, he'll be instantly their best striker. And hopefully this will see him return to, if not his sort of goal per game form that he had in his last Leipzig season. It'll sort of, I guess, resurrect him because some of the chances he was missing for Chelsea last season were just like so, so brutal. I mean, I think this is kind of an interesting transfer for the Leipzig project because this is really the first star that they've let go, hasn't really worked out for them, and now he's come back to the project. And so I think it's a really fascinating transfer to observe from afar because Timo Werner is someone who is returning to the club, you know, a bit damaged. Um, you know, not to to say that he's a damaged player, because I think, like you said, Nathan, I, I think he's going to have a lot to offer in the Bundesliga where he scored, you know, 20 plus goals when we last saw him there. But I definitely think Timo Werner is coming back psychologically a different player and it's going to be interesting to see you know how that fits into a Leipzig team that we know produces a lot of star talent but how are they going to reintegrate you know a star from the past for the first time you know coming back to kind of resalvage his his situation yeah and uh I don't know I think it also opens up the door for Nkunku to leave next season he signed a big contract renewal this summer and uh, with the expectation that you know he'd be allowed to leave later on, but uh, a strike partnership of Nkunku and Timo Werner is pretty pretty good with either Danny Olmo or Dominic Schubbelschlei behind him. So uh, yeah, I mean I hope he can get his form back because he's still so young, like relatively speaking, you know. And uh, the move that he made to Chelsea came with such fanfare because it was one of those transfers that was announced or sort of wrapped up. I think in like February or March of the like before he actually arrived. So fans really had a lot of time to build up expectations for him. And then a combination of his own poor finishing uh, and I think a, a tactical switch that didn't suit him uh, really sort of did him in in the end. But I think it's a good move for, for Leipzig. It's a good move for the Bundesliga. And uh, I'm curious to see how it plays out. Some other transfers yeah. that, that took place this week. Uh, aside from Rabio and Werner, Ricky Puig, as we mentioned earlier, joins uh, the LA Galaxy in kind of a surprising move. But the big move in Spain, I think, is Isco has finally been freed from the clutches of Real Madrid as uh, he heads to Sevilla. And uh, Caleb, I know you discovered Isco for yourself in that famed FIFA career mode back in like 2010. But... Uh, you think this is going to, you know, sort of revitalize him as well? I think so. And I think he he had a press conference today, I think, or maybe yesterday, where he said that he doesn't think his level has actually, you know, dropped that much um, and that he, you know, felt like he just wasn't being utilized super well. And so I think, 
a Sevilla side that has been kind of plundered this summer, more so on the defensive end, um, could needed, I think, a morale boosting uh, signing. And I think getting Isco on a free could prove to be incredibly savvy. And I think it'll be interesting to see whether he's able to put together the type of run of form that could even sort of sneak him onto, you know, the Spain squad, something that's eluded him for, for a few years now. Do we think that, uh, Nick, is there anything that you want to add on the, on the Isco transfer? Not particularly. I think maybe the last thing we should talk about today, there was another league that started and ended as well. Um, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Ligue 1, where PSG uh, won against Claremont Foot, uh, zero to five away. I think Messi may have finally started to feel a bit more at home in Paris. He had two goals and an assist, including a bicycle kick. Neymar had a goal and three assists. Um, Mbappe is, I believe, injured right now, so was not in the squad and didn't make an appearance so far. I think this PSG side we mentioned last week, I believe, um, or a few weeks ago, has has made some actually sensible transfers this summer. Um, Amazing transfers, particularly yeah. in midfield. And they're adding yeah. Fabian Ruiz to that as well from Napoli, it seems. Right. Like. So right. bringing in Vitinha, Fabian Ruiz, Renato Sanchez. Um, with that kind of base, with Messi and Neymar firing in all cylinders, I think they're going to win Ligue 1. That's not really a surprise. But I think they're much better positioned now to make a good run. Um, at the UCL as well. Listen, I want to address the listeners one more time before we leave. And I want to say this. Lionel Messi is 35 years old. And you all clowned on him last season. You know, he was hitting the post every week. You know, he wasn't scoring in Liga. You know, he didn't look that great physically coming back from his, you know, long, long absence following the Barcelona drama. Sure. Say whatever you want. You know, they got knocked out of the Champions League quite unceremoniously. Pochettino, whatever. Not combining with Mbappe, you know, Neymar going to like see his sister for his birthday. As usual, Lionel Messi, you know, not being the player that he was. Might be a little washed. Might need to head to Inter-Miami soon. He heard you. He heard you. And the man is doing bicycle kicks in the first weekend of the league uh, season. Lads, it's kind of crazy. The goat that, is back. Is it kind of crazy to you guys that this is his first bicycle kick goal in his entire career? Not like the really, man's only he's been kind of short. No, he's kind of short, but you would think that in a career of what, like six hundred something goals, that he would have scored like one bicycle kick. Well, but... the Messi template goal is always like you know he dribbles past five people and then scores on the ground, right? He's probably scored. It's he goal. dribbles past five people, does a quick one-two, and then scores on the ground. Yeah, and so there's been no real need for him to pull out the acrobatics since he has such deft control of the ball at all times. But yeah, it's insane. Like at, at the age of 35, you know, Messi is still on his day. Not even on his day. I, I think Messi is still the most technically gifted player the soccer world has potentially ever seen, and he's still doing new things. And him and Neymar, that combination up top 
seems to be running at full tilt once again. You know, Neymar getting a pair of assists as well. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, like Caleb said, you know, Liga is wrapped. Guys, guys, I think PSG are going to win Liga. And it'll be interesting to see if they can carry this form with Galtier, you know, someone who is way more of a pragmatic coach than Pochettino. Another who, savvy appointment. Exactly, yes. yes. Someone who, someone who I think is going to work a little bit more with uh, the tactics and the team that he has. Uh, we've seen that both at Lille and at Nice, that he can do a lot with a little, and now he's going to have a lot to use. So it's going to be interesting to see what they can do in Europe as well. Well, this weekend, uh, the other two of the big five leagues return as well, Serie A and La Liga, including, I believe, a La Liga first with Barcelona's game against Raya Vallecano getting shown on uh, national TV in the States, which is kind of cool. It's going to be on ABC, which I think is a, a big monument uh, or a big moment, rather, for, for the league. Uh, Dortmund's game last week was shown on ABC as well. Before we go... Prediction for Chelsea Spurs this weekend? Spurs 4-0. I'm not even kidding. No way. Okay. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I think Spurs are going to win 2-0. I think this game and ends I think, in I think Spurs nil, nil draw. 0-0 nil, nil draw. I think Spurs are going to win 2-0. And I think Raheem Sterling is going to miss an absolute sitter at 1-0. Raheem Sterling is going to score a hat trick of own goals. Not even kidding. Very specific predictions there. I'm going to go nil-nil drop, but we will uh, we'll catch you up on the result of that game and so much more the next time we record. But uh, and uh, I've been Nathan Strauss, Caleb Reds. I've been Nick Kevin, and I hate this sport. And we will see you next time.